The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning, brothers and sisters and friends and guests. We're very glad to have you here today. As you will remember, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, we are working through um, a bit of a mini-series right now. Bobby is preaching through Jeremiah, starting in the beginning of this year and going, I think, most of the way through the end. Uh, But we've paused for four weeks here in the spring and another four weeks in the fall, and I will be preaching a a biblical theology series working through Genesis. Uh, And so what I mean by that is uh, I will be preaching large chunks out of the book of Genesis, and instead of going verse by verse, and looking at what it directly says, which would be considered uh, expository preaching or exegetical Bible study. Uh, I will be looking at larger, kind of big picture themes that come out of the book of Genesis and extend throughout the rest of the Bible. So we're looking at how God introduces the way that He is going to operate and communicate with His people and the way that He is going to work and execute His plans in the future. We see it already planned out and introduced to us right here in the beginning of Scripture. So our progress so far, we have discussed the creation narrative where God makes all of the earth and the the heavens and the depths and he fills it with life and most importantly and especially he fills it with mankind. God made a garden and placed man into that garden and that garden was meant to be a place where God would live with his people and there would be in perfect harmony and community and man was given the instructions to multiply and to fill the earth and to expand that garden to cover all of creation to bring God's image and his glory to all of creation. We learned in that text that Adam serves as our federal head, which means our representative before God. So Adam goes and he follows these instructions, or in Adam's case, we find out that he does not follow these instructions as a representative of all mankind. And so Adam is cast out of the garden, but blessedly we also learned that God had already at that time planned to send Jesus, a better Adam, introducing a new garden and a new creation, and Jesus had no sin like Adam had. And so through Jesus, we are all then given the opportunity to re-enter God's new garden. But then we also learned last week through the narrative of the the original sin, the fall, and the story of Cain and Abel, we see that not only is there this thread of the garden and the restoration of the garden, but there is also this thread of God's enemies, God's people versus his enemies, as represented by the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. So even after Adam and Eve's sin, even as God brings judgment and punishment rightly upon them, he also offers them a promise. He says that this serpent that, that tempted you away from me, that you, woman, you will be against him through all of history. But one day, one of your seed will crush the serpent forever. And we see again Jesus as the answer Jesus is the seed of the woman who finally comes and will crush the seed of the serpent. And what we learned in that passage, and by studying that theme especially, is that God chooses His people, not the other way around. This line of the seed of the woman, this this God's chosen people, they are not the mighty or the firstborn or the rich or the powerful, and in fact God often specifically chooses those who seem weak or helpless to be his chosen people because he wants to prove to us that his people, that the seed of the woman, is not those who earn it. It is not those who are good enough or who do enough good works or who are impressive enough, but rather God chooses his people because it isn't his people that ultimately defeat the serpent. It is Jesus. And so now we're moving into the story of Noah and the flood. And as we continue on in this series, you'll find that the chunks that I'm taking on get longer and longer. And so we're going to have to get more and more aggressive about which parts we ignore. So I'm just going to remind you again, this is not a comprehensive treatment of any of these parts of the Bible. I may not even be addressing the quote-unquote main point of these stories necessarily. I am going to work through these sections of Scripture, and I'm going to be drawing out a particular theme, not all of the themes. There are 
hundreds of themes in Genesis that are introduced, but I'm going to be drawing out a particular theme, which means I'm going to be skipping over some parts, and I'm going to be leaving some questions unanswered and unaddressed, and that's okay, because there are a lot of people that have, you know, PhDs in, like, studying Genesis in Hebrew, and they all have plenty of work to do, and I'm not going to cover even close to that today. So just, if I skip over something that seems important, I'm sorry, ask me about it later, but we, we, have, a, we have a bit of an agenda, and I have to have this sermon end at a certain time, and so we're just going to focus on our, our one main theme in each of these passages. So you'll remember maybe from last week that, that Moses, the author of Genesis, often divides up Genesis into sort of big chapters. The chapters and first numbers in your Bible aren't, aren't necessarily the inspired word of God. They're just there for a handy reference. But Moses breaks up the book of Genesis by having these little passages where he says, uh, and these were the generations of. Okay, and so what he typically does is he sort of summarizes what this, uh, this seed of the serpent line, what this not chosen line of people is doing. And then he says, and these are the generations of, and he follows the, the seed of the woman line. And those are kind of the big chapter breaks. So in, in chapter 5, we have one of these big chapter breaks. We have a summary of what Cain and, and Cain's people were up to. And you'll remember that they are, they're building cities and inventing musical instruments and, and discovering metalworking. They're, they're getting a lot of useful things done, uh, but they're also wicked. Uh, one of Cain's line, Lamech, says, if anyone harms me, unlike Cain, who took revenge, I will take revenge 77 times. So Lamech is saying, hey, if you mess with me, I'll destroy you. And that summarizes the line of Cain, that summarizes the condition of, of the people that are not God's chosen. And then we move on to the line of Seth, the seed of the woman, the line that we know in the future to be God's chosen. And the line of Seth also ends, second to ends, with a, a different Lamech, not the same guy. And this other Lamech has a son named Noah. And Noah's name is a, it's actually sort of a pun that comes up a lot in this story. Uh, I won't get into it too much, but the name Noah means something like rest or comfort. And, and the sound of the word Noah in Hebrew just, it, it crops up again and again and again. And so this, this name, then, we should understand to be important, rest or comfort, okay? Um, and so even already, as we think about rest, we can look backwards at what we've already covered, and you'll remember that, that in some ways, when God let man die, because remember that man was not permitted to eat of the tree of life, lest he live forever, God says, yeah, you know, now that man is sinful and now that this earth is corrupt and cursed, death itself is even a sort of rest. To live forever in this sinful world would be, would be bad. So God has given us even rest already. And now Noah comes and Lamech says, he says, maybe this is the one. Just like Eve said of Cain, maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the seed of the woman that will crush the seed of the serpent and set everything right. Lamech says, maybe this is the one. Maybe Noah will give us rest. Maybe God will give us rest. And so we contrast Cain's line, who's very busy, but very wicked. And we, we see Seth's line, who is looking to God for rest. So let's go then past the genealogy. And we're going to start in Genesis 6. We'll remember that, that in Cain's line, we've introduced murder and polygamy and tyranny and vengeance already. And now we see, in summary, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Another translation says, all evil all the time. So God is, is grieved by this absolute failure of man to obey his commission. God places man in the garden and he says, Be fruitful and multiply. Bring my image and my glory to the ends of the earth. But man does the precise opposite of this. Man is supposed to obey God. Instead, he tries to make a law of his own. Man is supposed to multiply and fill the earth. Well, first, Cain kills his brother, the opposite of multiplying. But then, even when man does multiply, he is not multiplying the image and glory of God across the earth, but instead, he is multiplying wickedness. He is multiplying sin. So man is filling the earth with corruption. So God calls Noah. Noah, whose name means rest. 
And if you look in Genesis 6, I'm not going to read these whole sections for the, the sake of time, but if you look in Genesis 6, we see that, that Noah was considered righteous. God counted Noah as righteous. And I'm going to cheat, and we're going to go ahead in the Bible and, and grab something from there to bring it back to here. Noah was not righteous, but he was counted righteous. And the Bible teaches us later that, that Abraham as well was counted righteous by his faith. So God says to Noah, he says, build an ark. And this ark is the, the length of two football fields. It's enormous. It would have taken Noah and his three sons and his wife and his son's wives, probably all of the resources at their disposal and many years to build this ark and to prepare, as God instructs them, enough food for them and all the animals. This is a massive economic undertaking and certainly a fool's errand in the eyes of anyone else, and yet Noah is obedient. Noah is granted faith by God, and that faith is then counted to Noah as righteousness. And we even have proof of this right here in Genesis because after the floodwaters recede, God still says, even when only Noah and his family, they're the only people left on earth, the only living people left, God still says, man is wicked from his youth. And Noah is in fact still unrighteous. He is still cursed by sin, same as all other men, and yet God counts him as righteous by his faith. So God instructs Noah, Noah the man of rest and comfort, he says, have faith in me and build an ark for I am going to flood the entire earth because as God says, the earth was filled with violence and recall in creation that God looks upon the creation and it is good and now here in 612, God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. So we're now introduced to this idea that God is going to reverse creation. God is calling back to what he did and what he said in creation, and he says, this is the opposite of what creation was supposed to look like. So now this is the opposite of creation. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up on the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. So God separates the waters and makes land in creation. The waters cover the land. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures, and all mankind. So we skip over the sun and the stars because they're fine, and we skip over the fish because they're fine, but just like how God created the, the, the birds and the swarming beasts and the, the animals of the ground and then mankind, so he decreates. He destroys the very same. Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Only Noah was left and those were with him in the ark. So you see how this, this mirrors is the reverse image of creation, right? God, God builds up creation and he gives instruction to man and man disregards this instruction and seeks his own path opposite the way of God. And so God says, well, you've gone opposite my way and, and so I'm going to go opposite my way. But then... Even after this decreation, God then reinstitutes a sort of new creation. So then God said to Noah, after the waters recede, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. So now God has introduced a re-creation. He has created everything. He has de-created everything. And he has re-created everything. And if you, if you read over uh, chapter 8, after the floodwaters have receded, if you read the whole thing, you'll even see that there are more subtle indications of this recreation. It's, it's not a mere observance that, that it's kind of like recreation. It's a very explicit callback to the creation narrative. First, God blew a wind over the waters before the waters even receded. And that word for wind is the same word that's used for spirit, like in Genesis 1 when the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And then the heavens 
were closed off from the waters of the ground. So God separates the waters of the heaven from the waters of the earth, like he did in creation. And then the waters are separated to reveal land, like in creation. And then Noah releases birds. And then he releases animals. And then mankind leaves the ark, just like creation. So we are now introduced to this theme, this idea of recreation. And I'm going to say it a little bit differently, and we'll come back to it in a minute. Rebirth. And so now God reestablishes his same blessings and commands. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill up the earth. And he concludes by saying, I give you everything. So God is now reinstituted creation, creation reborn, and now Noah and his family, in a sense, as Adam, reborn. They're given the same commands, they're given the same blessings, and God says that he will never again wipe all life from the face of the earth. And as is often the case in Genesis, we get a, a short narrative here, and then a little bit later we get like the longer version of the same story. That's where you'll recognize the familiar promise of the, the rainbow, where God promises to never wash over all the earth with a flood again. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But what we see here as God, as God reinstitutes this new creation order, he is merciful. Even as he has judged the entire earth to be wicked and corrupt, and even Noah, because he still says to Noah, man's heart is evil from his youth, he is merciful through his judgment. And so now Noah and his family are given the opportunity to try again. And God promises that not only is he merciful, but he will care for them. He will give them food. He will not curse the ground even further. He will not make it even more difficult. And he promises that the, the means of producing food will persist and allow them to, to feed themselves and to multiply and to obey. So God has, in a sense, given rest. He has, in a sense, formed a new creation. And yet, there's still that hint Man's heart is evil from his youth. There's still that hint that it's, it is not complete. It's not finished. It's not the ultimate, the final new garden where there's no corruption whatsoever. We have not yet arrived there. And so as we move on then to God's larger expansion of his covenant with Noah, I just want to draw your attention to a little bit of imagery here. We're not going to deal with the covenant in great depth. We're going to talk about the entire theme of covenant in all of the Bible in the fall when we talk about Abraham, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, but the, the imagery that I want you to pick up here from this discussion of the covenant is mostly related to the rainbow. See, the, the word rainbow comes from this part of the Bible. It's a bow that comes from the rain. And the word bow... In English, it has you know two meanings. It has more meanings, but you know you've got like a, like a like a gift wrap, like a bow, and then you've got like a bow and arrow. And so in Hebrew, it's just it's the bow and arrow. Okay, so the word rainbow kind of has its sense in our head. But if you were reading this for the first time, or if God was telling you this for the first time, the only thing that you're hearing from God is God says, "I'm going to take my my bow, and I'm going to hang it in the sky, to show that I'm I'm done with it." Okay, and so a bow in this time was the, the weapon of choice for the warrior elite. The, the king, the pharaoh, the, the Assyrian king, there are like hieroglyphics and, and relief depictions that we've discovered that show, you know, maybe the pharaoh, uh, he's carved and he's standing in his chariot and he has his bow and he's being, you know, the, the, the people driving the chariot are like very small compared to the big pharaoh and then all of the infantry, all of the men with their spears and their shields are just just blocks off to the side. So the, the bow, the bow is the, the symbol, the weapon of the warrior king. And God says, I am hanging up my bow. So here, God has introduced himself as a, a warrior. And in Exodus 15, Noah says, the Lord is a man of war. And he says, I'm done with this. I'm setting this aside. So God has made war against his creation. And the flood, the waters of the flood, are his armies. 
and the storms and the rain and the lightning are his bow, and he hangs it up. So just hang that up in your minds. The Lord is a warrior. And so now Noah continues this pattern of the new creation by planting a garden, a vineyard. He becomes a man of the soil. So he gets off the ark, he makes a sacrifice, and this sacrifice that he makes, it, it follows sort of the same pattern, the same language as we see later in the Bible when the Israelites make a sacrifice for their sin. So it's a sacrifice that's meant to, to symbolize God putting the wrath on the sacrifice instead of putting the wrath on the one making the sacrifice. So Noah says, God, you, you haven't killed me along with everyone else, and so, so I make this sacrifice to you. But then Noah, following the pattern of Adam, continues the pattern of sin. Noah becomes a man of the soil and plants a vineyard and becomes a drunkard. He returns to the corruption that has been in his heart since his youth. He is not righteous. He's not the new Adam. He's not the seed of the woman. And then, of course, naturally, as Noah sins, so do his sons. And I want to pause here and do a sort of a tangent, but I think it's worthwhile because I've mentioned a couple of times that studying biblical themes like the way we are and the symbols in the Bible could be dangerous because you can look at a theme out of context and stir up something that's not actually in the Bible. What we're doing here with biblical theology is we're letting the Bible teach us how to read it. And so, so to that end, I want to stop here and I want to talk about the sins that Noah's son, Ham, committed against him. See, Ham looked upon Noah's nakedness, and there's a few ways to interpret that, but I, I just kind of, I think it's to be taken literally. He's just, he's been disrespectful to his father. He's come upon his father naked, and he goes off to tell his brothers, look at dad. And he, he shames his father. And Ham's brothers, Noah's other sons, do the right thing, and they, they turn their backs, and they cover Noah, and they, they show respect and deference and honor to their father. And Noah, and then God through Noah, curses Ham. Now some people have taken this to mean that God has laid a permanent curse upon all of Ham's descendants. And Ham is told that he will serve his brothers. Now what this has been used to mean is especially during the time of American slavery. If you look at Ham's descendants, you see that there are some African peoples, some black people groups that are the sons of Ham. And so they say, oh, well, all of these black people that are our slaves, they're the sons of Ham. And God said right here that Ham is going to serve his brothers. So, so that makes perfect sense. But the issue with treating the Bible this way is that that's not what the Bible says. If you only read these few verses and you already have an idea in your mind of what you want it to say, you could make it make sense. But nowhere else in Scripture are we, are we able to find this interpretation. In fact, in the other places in Scripture, what we do find is that what God actually meant about Ham is that Ham's descendants include people like the Canaanites and the Assyrians and the Egyptians, you know, the usual suspects that God uses to punish Israel, but then the usual suspects that Israel comes and, and reconquers with the help of God. This is the, the curse of Ham. It has nothing to do with the slavery of the African peoples, but if you only read that one part of the Bible and you try to stir a big theme up out of it, you can come up with these incredibly false interpretations of the Bible. And so I hope just by discussing this, I'm showing you here that the way that we're reading the Bible is we're letting the Bible interpret itself. I'm not looking at something in the Bible and I'm saying, hey, it could be this. Hey, this, this, this kind of symbolizes this thing, so maybe that's it. No, I'm looking at what the Bible says. The Bible tells us what the Bible means. Okay, so let's continue on then and discuss our selected theme of the day. From this story of the flood, this decreation and this recreation, I want to introduce to you the theme of judgment and specifically salvation through judgment. Okay, so first let me make a few points about judgment. We see here in this, in this text in Genesis that sin requires judgment. When God takes Noah off the ark, he makes a covenant with Noah, he makes his agreement with Noah, and what he says is, 
For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God is saying those who kill men deserve to be killed. And God is saying more than that. He's actually saying those who kill the image of God deserve to be killed by God. From his fellow man, I, God, will require a reckoning for the life of man. God says the life of man is in my image, and so destroying it is a sin against me, and the consequences of a sin against me are death by my judgment. So sin requires judgment. Next, we also see that judgment is God's way of wiping away evil or corruption. You could even say cleaning creation of the corruption. I mean, the flood itself is the, the obvious example, and the flood is used as a motif in all the rest of Scripture as the, the quintessential example, the, the number one primary example. When God judges the earth, it's like the flood. The flood is the picture of God judging and wiping away evil from the earth. But we also see it in the covenant. We see, we see that God requires life for life. So when, when there is that man who has murdered his brother, God wipes him away. And that language, that life for life, it's spoken in a legal terminology, as in, I, God, the judge, have found you guilty of taking the life of one of my image bearers, and so therefore sentence you to lose your life. And we contrast this, this judgment to wipe away evil, we can contrast it with Cain's judgment or, or Lamech's vengeance. See, Cain and Lamech both say, if you, if you mess with me, I'll mess with you as a form of tyranny. They say, if you hurt me, I'll hurt you. It's a threat to get what they, they want. And you can imagine, you know, in this early sort of pre-governmental time, you know, Lamech or his, his people, this is maybe how they rule with an iron fist. If you take from me, I'll destroy you. If you hurt one of my people, I'll kill all of yours. But that's not the judgment that God is using. God introduces this, this sort of divine societal obligation with a basis in the image of God to say, no, there, there are sins that require judgment, not vengeance, but judgment. Which brings us to realize then that God's judgment is right and good. Okay? And so this is where we start to run into the problem of people who, you know, could never worship a God who would destroy everyone in the flood. How, you know, how could someone do that? And the, the issue is, first of all, trying to play what-ifs with, with God's things is always dangerous because the, the fact of the matter is you don't know what-if. You know, if you were God, you would do it differently. Well, it's a good thing you're not God then because if you would have done it differently, you probably would have screwed it up in some way that you can't predict and it would be so much worse than it is the way God has done things. But... But, but God's judgment, it is, is right and good, and we, we are drawn to see this when we look in these passages where there was violence covering the entire earth. The whole world was corrupt. There's vengeance and tyranny. I mean, I, anyone who says that, that mankind does not deserve this judgment, it, I, I think they're lying to themselves because all of us recognize that judgment is necessary for justice. I mean, if violence was covering the whole earth, that's violence against women and violence against children, probably slavery, tyranny, theft, every kind of wrongdoing. There was polygamy and every kind of abuse and assault, violence and corruption and wickedness covered the entire earth. And so, so what? So God is just going to make everyone stop? We're going to shake hands and make up? Where is the justice here? And most of all, most of all, our wrongdoing is against God. Every sin, every sin that has ever been committed, yours included, is mostly an affront to God because you have insulted His image, whether or not it's another image bearer or whether or not it's your own body as an image of God. You have spit in God's face and deserve, therefore, His judgment. And yet, in spite of God's judgment, being complete and wiping away all of the evil and being entirely good and deserved, we see the hints already right here in the flood narrative that God's judgment is part of the means of salvation. God's judgment is not merely something to be saved from, but it is actually part of the way that we are 
saved. Because God's judgment, one, makes room for the rebirth. It makes room for that new creation. And two, it cleanses those who are passed through the judgment and reminds us, yet again, that God's chosen are not chosen on the merit of their works, but are granted faith and thereby counted righteousness, just like Noah was granted faith and counted righteous. So instead of being destroyed by the judgment, instead of being cast aside to make room for the new creation, he was chosen to persist, to be a remnant, to pass through the judgment, cleanse, and be part of the new creation. Even though that new creation was not yet complete, the symbol, the theme, is introduced here that we will encounter later. So let's now trace this theme through more of Scripture. First of all, God judges His enemies. This is all over the Old Testament, but also all over the New. God judges His enemies, and it is always depicted as right and deserved. God destroys the Canaanite peoples because they were sacrificing their children to their false gods and they were killing one another and committing every kind of wickedness. It sounds a lot like why God sent the flood. After Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt, he sings, after they cross the Red Sea, what is called Moses' Song of the Sea. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, it's kind of long, but I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your enemies. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Skipping a bit. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed, and you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Skipping ahead more, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And see the imagery, see the, the strength of this picture that Moses has drawn and the, the strength of the pattern that God has established. God comes in as a man of war and wipes away the evildoer, leaving through a narrow way his remnant of people who have been chosen not by their merit or by their impressiveness or by their righteousness, but who have been chosen by the grace of God. They are to pass through the judgment, through the flood waters, and where everyone else is destroyed, a small few pass through to come to God's dwelling place to be with him into his, his new creation. So all throughout the Bible, God judges his enemies and passes through his chosen. But God also judges his own people. And he uses this most often to demand that they return to him. God uses the enemy armies like the rains and the flood. The Assyrians are described crashing down on the Israelites like rain. The Egyptians and the Babylonians come like floods, their great armies to sweep away Israel when they are disobedient to God. But God always says, so that they might repent, so that they will return to me, to see that I am judging them wicked, but, but only by their faith in me can they pass through the judgment. You can look in the book of Judges, God over and over again. The book of Judges is like 13 kind of like the same story over and over again, okay? And, and every single time, it says that God strengthens some enemy of Israel and sends them against Israel as a judgment, and then Israel, with their now judge, uh, with, with the judgment now upon them, they see their need for God and repent. So God sends judgment to his people to, to cleanse them, to, to try to bring them to repentance, to return them to him. And in Jeremiah 5, we see a lot of judgment and a lot of repentance in Jeremiah. So I hope this will continue to sound familiar as we go. In Jeremiah 5, Now it is I who speak in judgment upon them. Behold, he comes up like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. So God brings his judgment to wipe away the evildoer, but also to, to cleanse his chosen and bring them back into repentance. Let's go to Revelation. As, as we always do here in Genesis, you see that the, the Bible begins and ends in the same place. God so frequently writes in a way that begins and ends in the same place. And it's actually funny, we're, we're very, very literally just moving inwards 
the creation narrative and Genesis chapter 22 and then the fall and Genesis 20 and 21 and now here the flood and Genesis, um, Revelation 19 we're moving inward Revelation 19 after I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out hallelujah salvation and glory and power belong to our Lord his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immortality immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants then I saw heaven open to behold a white horse the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war skipping ahead a bit and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen white and pure were following him on white horses from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them all with a rod of iron he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So this is how, this is how history ends. God, God builds this creation, he decreates it, he recreates it, and we, we skip over that pattern happening over and over again, a whole bunch, and we get to the, the very end, and I hope you'll remember from the last couple of Sundays that, that uh, Revelation 19 isn't, isn't quite the very end, but we get right up to the end, and God, again, he comes as a man of war to strike down all the evildoers, to judge and to make war, just like he did in the flood. And so, the question then is, how is this not me? God has chosen Noah. God has chosen Moses. God has chosen Israel. God has chosen his church to pass through the judgment, to be the remnant. And so, how so? So, let's just recap where we've been. Judgment is a warning. God is going to destroy his enemies. But for those who are chosen, those who have faith, it is, is a warning, but a warning that should drive us to repentance. It should drive us back to God. And God's judgment, even more than just that, is, is part of salvation, right? Because we're all the sons of Adam. We're all the serpent seed. We all desire evil all the time from our youth. But God chooses some to, to cleanse instead of destroy. And so let me introduce a, a little series of related images, some threads that are woven together in Scripture that I hope will draw a picture that can answer this question. So first, let me read to you from Jonah. <clears throat> Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. So Sheol is the Hebrew word for, for the, the, the underworld, where you go when you die, or the grave. And you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountain. So Jonah, here in the sea, he is, he is connecting the waters and the depths of the waters to the grave. And this makes perfect sense. When God sent the flood in Genesis, he turned all of creation into one giant grave. So the waters and the grave go together. Okay, and there are many places in the rest of Scripture that, that kind of poetically use the depths of the sea as a metaphor for the place where something is never coming back from. When it's cast into the depths of the sea, that is as far away as it can get. It's gone, just like the grave. But let me introduce to you another related theme that might seem counterintuitive now that we've connected the, the waters and the flood to the grave. Let me read to you from Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And I hope that that sounds familiar if you've, if you've been around church for a while. Perhaps you will recall in John chapter 3, 
after Jesus has begun his teaching ministry, a, a rabbi, a teacher in the, the Jewish community, secretly approaches him at night and asks him, he says, he says, what are you saying? How can I see the kingdom of God? How can I be saved? And Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. As Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Okay, Nicodemus is a smart man, so this question is rhetorical. He knows that the answer is no, of course not. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so, so water, it symbolizes, it's, it's connected in the Bible repeatedly with, with the grave, but also with cleansing and, and such a cleansing that it is a rebirth. Judgment the waters of judgment lead to a cleansing so thorough and complete that it is as if you are recreated, just like God recreated the world. And in Romans, it says creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So God, God reinforces this promise. He says this cleansing, this judgment is like childbirth leading to birth, leading to being born again. And so the, the whole image of born again that Jesus teaches to Nicodemus, to be born again almost means to die. It means to be judged, but that, that judgment water is also the water of cleansing and of birth. Many times in the Bible we see, you know, I'm trying to not be explicit, but a, a narrow, painful place that leads to birth. Egypt, the Israelites called it the narrow place. And God said, I will carry you through the waters, the narrow place, into the broad land. The flood covers the whole world, and that big giant ark is actually really tiny compared to the flood, and that narrow place comes to rest on God's mountain in his new creation. And so then maybe, again, if you've been in church for a while, another little bell is ringing. Jesus says, For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So this causes us to realize then that we still haven't answered the question of exactly how God passes us through his judgment. Through the narrow places, his chosen people go into the broad lands, into the new garden, new creation. But by what means? We're sinful. We desire only evil from birth. How does God clean us? 1 Peter. I would encourage you as well, read First and Second Peter. Peter really likes the flood imagery. It, it is going to change the way that you read Peter if you think about the flood while you read it. First Peter, Jesus. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, no vengeance. When he was suffered, he did not threaten, no retribution. He's not Cain, he's not Lamech, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We pass through God's judgment, his floodwaters of judgment, by dying and being reborn because Jesus died, receiving the full weight of of all of the judgment that would destroy us, and because he bore the judgment that would destroy us, we instead receive the judgment that would cleanse us. And in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, the floodwaters of God's judgment do 
in fact kill you so that you can be reborn in righteousness. It kills the sin. It kills the wicked man. And God makes you a new creation, passing through the narrow place, the pain of childbirth, into the broad, open space of God's dwelling. And you see this again in baptism. Baptism. We go into the water, dead to our sins. We are buried in the depths. And yet, like Jesus, we return up out of the depths, out of the grave, out of the waters, reborn. A new creation. I hope you see that the judgment of God will certainly come. In Revelation, he will strike down all of the armies of the evil one and all the peoples and nations of the earth, and yet his chosen people will be a remnant. They will remain. They will pass through the judgment, not destroyed, but cleansed because of Jesus' sacrifice in our place. <clears throat> and so for the unbeliever, let me read to you from 2 Peter. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day following their own sinful desires, and they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Peter says, hear this warning. Just because it seems like God isn't coming down and judging the earth right now, just because the violence covers the earth, just because the world looks corrupt, don't think that it's because God has forgotten. He doesn't think of time like you do. He's, he's waiting and he's coming. Do not overlook this one fact that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So consider this then your warning, your notice. God went to Noah and he said, a flood is coming, build the ark. You have heard the warning. God's judgment is coming. Will you have faith in the Lord and beg him for the blood of Jesus to bear his judgment so that instead of being destroyed, you are cleansed? Or will you, like all of the others in the day of Noah, scoff and mock him and say, you're wasting your time. God has never flooded the earth yet, and so I don't believe he's going to in the future. Are you going to wait and see, or are you going to repent? And then, believer, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others where he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, then... The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under their punishment until the day of judgment. So then, friends, brothers and sisters, if you also look upon the world and you also ask yourself, when is God going to judge the world? When is justice going to prevail? When is the wickedness and the evil in all of man's heart going to be destroyed or cleansed and replaced with a new creation? Look back upon the flood and see that God will judge. Inevitably, those who must be judged will be judged. And so then, be patient and faithful. Just as Peter writes to us as he concludes his letter, this is to all of you. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares.
cares for you. Be sober-minded and watchful, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, God's judgment is coming on the earth, and we are in the narrow place. Stand firm. Be patient, as God is patient. For his judgment will come. It will wipe away all evil. And those who are chosen, those who have repented of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ, will not be destroyed by the judgment, but will be passed through it clean and join God on his new mountain, in his new garden, in his new creation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your judgment. Without your law, we would not know what is right and wrong. And without your judgment, we would do as we wished and justice would never come to those who deserve it. But God, also, we know that all of us deserve your judgment. We have all sinned against ourselves and our brothers and most of all, you. And so God, thank you for knowing that we would need someone else to stand in the place of that judgment. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his receiving the wrath and the judgment that is deserved by me and my brothers and sisters that are here. God, we will be faithful. We will be patient. We will be steadfast. Please strengthen us until that time comes when the judgment is complete once and for all and we are all made new and join you in your new creation. Lord, please bring that day quickly. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. Yeah.